0: Hello and welcome to the Deep Overstock Fiction Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Eversman, and this is a special release celebrating the release of Deep Overstock, Issue 18. Old favorites! After visiting the Pearl Room last episode, we are going all the way downstairs to the first floor in the Rose Room. Issue 2, Fairy Tales, Folk Tales, and Fables, and Issue 11, Animals. Tonight, we will hear work by Clarissa Grunwald, Riley Huff, Carolyn Reddy, Kate Falvey, Ryan Shane Lopez, Anna Laura Falvey, Cecily Cecil, and Eric Thralby. First, we have Survival Guide for Mortals Trapped in 2022 by Clarissa Grunwald.
1: Survival Guide for Mortals Trapped in 2022. Be careful to whom you tell your true name. Mind how the time moves, one hour on Instagram is three in the real world. Don't leave the path, always ask for the price, then ask again just to be sure. If you meet a man with the head of an ass, leave Twitter as quickly as you politely can. Where the maze burrows towards the future, two brothers stand guarding the exit. Remember, both can lie, or tell the truth. This is not a riddle. Choose kindly, and reach for a door.
0: Now, Spirulina by Riley Huff.
2: She plays in the shallows, always just beneath the surface. Find her near the mud banks of a shrunken lake. She is swimming among the weeds, happy to be free. Nothing can move her, not like it used to. She has felt her share of sadness and would rather keep her head up locked on the sun. She survives because of the sun, the great giver, the cruel taker, the light that shines over entire worlds. Water lets her breathe easy. Water will never be pure again, but she has learned to tolerate the detritus in her home. Plastic containers and threatening blobs of waste and oil still float around her, whether she's stagnant as pond water or perfecting her backstroke. But at last, no more will be added to the pile. The pipelines have stopped. The disposal has long ended. The toxins need to be broken down, but all that takes is time. Everything decomposes over time. She smiles more now, though no one can see her face. Her hair floats behind her, a carefree aquatic contrail. The world is actually a beautiful place when you're not destroying it, and it's not destroying you. Just open your eyes. She tells herself this every time she grows tired of dreaming. Breathe in deep. Look to the sun for enrichment. Know your responsibility to the world. Because the world... As graceful a host as it may be, will always give back what it receives.
0: Now we have The Lost Tribe by Carolyn Reddy. I never knew that the name Osei Afrifa was one of royalty, until a classmate whispered, You are of noble blood. But I had been beaten and belittled by so many that I didn't believe. For years. I slept as until I felt the stars of Anansi and listened to the Jimbei drum. I danced in the astral realm and asked the Ashanti ancestors to create a tapestry of kente cloth so I could be clad in a regal robe. I danced in the astral realm and asked the Ashanti elders to create a ritual ceremony as I cleared the battlefields. I soared above the prairie's fields and sought the safaris that could purify the spears and swords. I learned the ancient Akindra symbols and sought the wisdom that would be sown into my cells as I reclaimed my name, Nana'akwa, and the golden stool. Now here's one noble neighbor By Ryan Shane Lopez
1: One Noble Neighbor By Ryan Shane Lopez From Grimm's Little Red Cap Perrault's Little Red Riding Hood and Christ's Parable of the Good Samaritan There was once a sweet young girl who lived deep in the woods with her mother. Everyone who saw this girl instantly adored her. One day, her mother was feeling ill, so she gave the girl her coin purse her riding hood, and her mule, and sent her into town to buy some cake and wine. Along the way, the girl passed a meadow, where a patch of beautiful sunflowers was in bloom. Unable to resist, she dismounted and began to pick a bouquet to lift her dear mother's spirits. Just then, a band of men came riding by and stopped to ask the young girl where she was going all alone. Not knowing it was unwise to speak to strange men, she held up her coin purse and told them she was heading into town to buy cake and wine for her sick mother. "'Does your mother live nearby?' they asked her. "'Not so near,' answered the girl, "'for it is half-day's journey from here to town, "'and I have come three-quarters of the way already. And "'Did you leave no one behind to look after her?' "'No one,' admitted the girl, "'hoping the men were offering to check in on her poor mother, "'for we live alone.' Seeing there was no one in sight, the men set upon the girl. They emptied her coin purse, stole her mule, and stripped off her clothing. When they had taken all they desired, they covered her with her mother's cloak and left her lying among the trampled flowers. After some time, an old woman who lived in a nearby cottage came shuffling down the road carrying a basket of freshly picked berries. When she saw the young girl cowering beneath the riding cloak soaked red with blood the old woman clutched her basket and hurried along on the far side of the road next a man who'd been cutting wood nearby came strolling down the road whistling and carrying his axe over his shoulder when he heard the little girl whimpering and begging for help the woodcutter whistled all the louder and sauntered by on the far side of the road as night fell The girl began to shiver with cold. Too weak even to stand, she began to cry out and, without knowing why, found she was calling the name of her own father, whom she had not seen for many years. She had not been calling for long, when she saw two enormous yellow eyes peering at her out of the dark woods on the far side of the road. She trembled with fear as an old shaggy wolf crept out of the shadows and into the moonlit meadow. I will never see my beloved mother again, thought the girl, for my foolish cries had brought a wolf here to devour me. The wolf circled her, sniffing her wounds, but did not devour her. Instead, it hoisted her onto its back and carried her off through the darkness. The girl, now quite delirious, imagined that the wolf was not a wolf at all, But her father, who, hearing her cries across mountains and oceans, had flown to her side in her time of deepest need. As she rode on his back, she spoke with him. "'Oh, father, what big ears you have! All the better to hear your cries for help, my child. And what strong legs you have! All the better to carry you with, my child. And what thick hair you have!' All the better to warm you with, my child. And what sharp teeth you have. All the better to protect you with, for these woods are crawling with wicked men. When he reached a nearby cottage, the wolf pulled the bobbin with his teeth and the latch lifted. Once inside, he cleaned and bandaged the girl's wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he dressed her in a nightgown he found, placed her in the bed beneath the covers, and drew the curtains. Despite his innate fear of the flame, he lit a fire to warm her. As she slept, he went out and caught a squirrel. He filled a pot with water from the well out back, skinned and gutted his catch, and cooked a stew over the fire. He sat on his haunches at the girl's bedside until the sun rose next morning, when he was relieved to see the girl's color had improved, and she was able to take some of the stew he'd prepared. Around midday, The wolf was changing the girl's bandages when in through the door walked the owner of the cottage, the very same old woman who had passed by on the far side of the road. One look at the wild beast crouching over the half-naked girl and licking her wounds, and the old woman ran screaming all the way back to town. Knowing this would mean trouble, the wise old wolf told the girl he must leave her now. But, calling him father, she begged him to stay by her side. That very evening, the old woman returned with the woodcutter to find the shaggy gray wolf still on his haunches at the girl's bedside. The beast did not snarl, or snap, or run. Even so, the woodcutter swung his axe and cleaved the wolf's head from its body with one blow. Then he carried the girl back to her mother's cottage. Afterwards, the tale spread far and wide of how the woodcutter had saved both an old woman and a little girl from the belly of the crafty wolf. Over the course of its many tellings, certain details were lost, while others were altered and then altered again. But everywhere the tale was told, its hearers praised the woodcutter's courage and cursed the wolf's wickedness.
0: Here's Trust by Anna Laura Folby. My mother always tells me, you've got to pick your gods. She says this, leaning at a crow's angle over a cup of coffee, a glass of wine, through the oiled steam of a stir-fried dinner. From under the tumble of her quilted bedcloths, voice muffled behind appealing murder mystery shouted out the back door to the forest before the deadbolt has been undone. If you worship false gods, she says, your bones and your eyes and your mind will brittle and fall away into nothing. I imagine her sometimes tending a garden of nothing, the gravekeeper of false god-worshippers, either with her hair gray and middle-parted, short and severe, lips pursed in a respectful red line as she tends, or with a long white braid down her back that persists swinging over her shoulder and into the earth. Here she weeps and laughs, and the weeds tremble. She salts the garden, which burns the molten remnants. She says, through the acid hiss of pain dissolving, You've got to pick your gods. All right, frog princes in wolves and wolves in sheep's clothing, let's see what our non bewitched animal species are up to now. Follow me toward the Burnside exit for Issue 12, Animals. First, we have Self-Portrait as an Anglerfish by Cecily Cecil. You say maybe we can't be friends because you think I can't express anger. You have a degree in psychology. Anger is important to you. But anger is a tsunami, a greedy, gluttonous predator, an indifferent drowner of you and me. Anger is an insatiable carnivore, but since you're angling for anger, let me imagine what it would be like to be carnivorous for a day when your words bite to plunge to the depths on my bloated belly, to unhinge my gaping maw, to portend perfect pearlescent protuberances, only for you to realize that I drew your bite with the cruel intent to absorb everything you are. Lured by dangling dorsal brilliance, my pulsing luminescence, nothing more than foul, fleshy growth cultured bacteria in an esca what if that were my angle what if you become my symbiote isn't empathy inevitable, so then can't we just skip over all the anger and be friends now here's Traces by Kate Foley. A gorilla zooed in a kindly habitat, not quite like its mountained own, recently cradled a fallen human infant, unused to heights and jarred from its slip away from mother's arms. The gorilla, a mother herself, understood yowling when she heard it. She set the child before the keeper's gate, assuming kind should go immaculate to kind. Knowing that the bandied creature would be stumbled upon and pet, when the evening bananas were tumbled in, rejoicing all round, scratches dressed and diapers changed, and new takes on animal altruism extended from this interface. It might have been a fluke, a particularly gentle and bright gorilla, or, conversely, one too instinctively pea-brained to figure out a scheme for stealing and storing this morsel from the skies, or, Was she an impish sort, nursing a secret lauding over her condescending captors, vengeance-tempting but not sporting, or worth the aggravation, or maternally pragmatic, she could surely have been one who'd simply had enough monkeys on her back to trouble with another. She may only have wanted to get rid of all the racket. Experimental infants might be sacrificed to science, flung one by squalling one to a statistically viable assortment of gorillas, varied in species, gender, rank, and age, place, origin, rearing, and type, if any, of human influence and contact, to gather more conclusive, comparative data. Just so we'd know, for sure, why this quirk happened. But this is all indulgent. By the way, I'd... Rather wax speculative about the rescued child. How will he mature with this story as his climate? Always a kind of temperature-controlled landscape of fright and hairy arms. Some oor-memory of eyes near golden in recognition and lament. Folk sucked down fairy holes who live to tell the tale. Never can quite tell it. They see things... They know they remember, though it is impossible that they do. Now, The Ape and The Return of the Ape by Eric Thralby. The Ape. My father always knocked on my door. Perchance the ape is in? He opened my door and helped me into the costume. He beat a drum and said, Ladies and gentlemen, the ape! I tumbled. I dragged my knuckles. I ooga-boogad. I left school and learned to operate the roller coaster. We, too, at our county fair had an ape. He stalked the children and stole their bananas. He wore a tie and could stand on a ball. Once, the ape attacked me. He pinned me to the ground under the scrambler. He spit a long stream of candy through his mask and into my mouth. Welcome to Stanland, he said. His name was Stanley the Ape. I've seen the ape, I told my father over the phone. Again? he said. Yes, I said. He said, God, gotta love the ape. What's he say? Ooga booga? Yes, I said. My father's voice became small. Your own ape's here, you know, just... uh... Getting dusty. The Return of the Ape When the circus burned down, I found work selling peanuts. Here on the boardwalk, people purchase day-old sardines in order to feed the pelican, sticking their arms up to their shoulders into its throat. Patient, old bird. Unfortunately, there was a balloon man. What do you say I fold you a big banana, he said. No, I said. The balloon man had a secret. I have a little son. I will not patronize an ape, I said. Here he is, he said. His little son tumbled and hooted like a monkey. He could balance on a ball. He was everything the ape should be. But with no costume, he was just an ordinary boy. I called my father on a phone by the pier. There was at first a long pause. I could say nothing, and my father only muttered confusedly into the phone. Finally, I gave him the truth. Ooga booga, I said. When my father arrived in a cloud of dust in his sky-blue van, I introduced the balloon man to my father, and the balloon man introduced my father to his little son. My father hunched and crinkled a small paper bag. I've got something here for you, my boy, said my father to the boy. My father removed the ape from the paper sack. It was like a real animal. Its feet dangled as they sipped past the edge of the paper. Do you think maybe he could try it on? The balloon man took the ape suit from my father and pressed his thumbs into it, as if assessing its quality. Boy, was all he said. The boy climbed into the ape, then stood on the ball. He stood around the small ape on the ball, going around and around, rocking the planks of the boardwalk. The boy rolled off the ball and into a somersault. He hooted and hollered, heavily tiptoeing and tickling his own underarms. The two fathers enjoyed it so much. They slapped at their thighs and thumbed away tears. A crowd gradually drifted in like the tide, the pier creaking under its weight. In all this excitement, I finally escaped this concludes episode 2 the rose room Folk Tales, fairy tales fables and animals you've been listening to the deep overstock fiction podcast join us again next week for the coffee room do not forget to submit for our next issue which is in the pearl room hacking before november 30th visit DeepOverstock.com slash submissions for specific guidelines